Wait, have any of you seen the movie Vantage Point that came out in 2008? Show of hands. One, two, three, four. Okay, that's twice as many people as in the first service. That's great. So um, the movie came out in 2008. It was not exactly a big cinematic deal or anything. You could be forgiven for having missed it. But to someone who was 13 years old at the time and only recently getting to go see PG-13 movies with my dad, it was a big deal. All right, it was an action movie. The premise of the movie was there's this event that's happening. It's an attempted assassination of a political figure. And they tell the event from the perspective of six witnesses. And each time they get to the end of one witness's story, they'll start over with the first witness, and you'll get to live it through the witness's eyes, seeing what happens. And each person has a mixture of information that clarifies the former story, and then some apparently irrelevant details that turn out later to be key plot points. And at the end, when you put all the perspectives together, you finally see what happened. You get who did it, they catch the bad guy, end of the story. The problem with Vantage Point is, despite having a rather clever idea of how to tell the story, they forgot to write a good story that they could tell cleverly. Um, Fortunately for us, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John do not suffer from a lack of a good story, but they do choose to use the same narrative trick. Each person provides a little bit of a different perspective with different pieces of information in their narrative that when you put it together, it all makes sense. None of them have contradictory information, but they all do have different information. And only in putting the stories together can you see not only the connection of all of the events there, but the connection of these events to all of the rest of Scripture. So, I'm really going to try not to overstate here, but I really do believe it when I say that I believe this passage is one of the most significant in the entire Bible. I believe this is a narrative peak in redemptive history that belongs in the company of stories like the giving of the Ten Commandments, the crossing of the Red Sea, the crucifixion, and even the resurrection. The reason I believe that is that this story helps us understand those stories. Everything pulls together here. In fact, this is the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that is in all four gospel accounts. It's very interesting. The only one that's in all four of them is this story here, and they all tell it just a little bit differently. So, in the interest of seeing all the connections, we're going to do something a little bit unique today. This is not a new idea, but we're going to we're actually going to look at all four texts together in what's called a harmony of the accounts. This is how a lot of theologians in the past, including Calvin, have handled it. Um, So hopefully this will be an instructive way for us to examine the passage today. Now, in the interest of not overselling it, I'm just going to stop introducing and telling you why I think it's great and actually just start with the story. So what's happening is this is set in the third year of Jesus's ministry. All right. It's right before a Passover celebration. And Passover is a major point in all of the Gospels, right? There's a cycle of Passovers that the Gospels are all sort of structured around. They all begin right before a Passover celebration. Most of the major events in the Gospel take place around a Passover celebration, and they all end right after the fourth Passover celebration when Christ is crucified and raised again. So Passover for the Gospel writers is this cycle around which they tend to focus their themes and their narratives. Jesus has been preaching already for three years healing people for three years, doing miracles, casting out demons. He's become quite a big deal because he's done all of this in a 60-mile radius. If you do all that stuff for three years in a 60-mile square of land, you're going to get people's attention. So now he's come back home for the holidays, as we are all wont to do, and he has had some trouble with his family, as I'm sure none of us know anything about. So he gets back to his hometown, and 
the people don't believe he is who he says he is. Basically, they receive his message and they say, who does this guy think he is? We grew up with this guy. His family is here. His brothers and sisters are here and even they don't believe him. Who does he think he is? And the text says he was unable to do many miracles there because of their unbelief. After a number of days of this, increasingly frustrated with their lack of faith, he decides to leave that town and go up the road to Bethsaida, which is a town on the Sea of Galilee. And it's actually the Apostle Peter and uh, Andrew's hometown. So they're in Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. Now remember that because it's going to be important later. Here in Galilee, he begins to perform many miracles and heal many sick people. Now, because it's right before Passover, there's a bunch of people there, right? Because everybody comes back home for the holidays. So there's as many people there as there ever are. And he's been doing this for three years already. So word's gotten around. A bit of a mob scene begins to form. Everybody's really excited. We have Jesus here. He's healing people. Everybody wants to go and get their taste of a miracle. So Jesus spends several days healing people, caring for the sick with the disciples to the point of not even having time to eat on the last day. So him and the disciples are exhausted. And it's at this point, still saddened about his family rejecting him, tired from days of traveling and healing, it's now that his disciples come and tell him that his cousin John, who he grew up with, has been beheaded by King Herod for preaching the good news about him. Now Mark and Luke hint that when Jesus tells the disciples at this point, let's withdraw and go away to a desolate place, it's so that they can all rest. But Matthew hints that Jesus was also seeking solace for himself to grieve the loss of his cousin. So for all these reasons, they sail across the Sea of Galilee to a mountain on the opposite shore. However, some of the people in Bethsaida saw them getting in the boat, and they told all of their friends, and a whole group of them, hundreds of people, got together, ran around the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and beat them to the other side. They were sailing straight across in a ship. These people cut them off, went to the other side. So they pull in, Jesus looks out and sees the people, this giant crowd of people running towards them. And even though he is exhausted and sad and hungry, the text says he had compassion on them. And Mark adds a fascinating explanation that he had compassion on them because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. The people in Galilee looked like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to heal their sick, and he taught them many things about the kingdom of God. Now, when evening came, his disciples came to him and said, Hey, this is a desolate place, and it's getting late, so you should send the people away to buy some food in the nearby towns. Now, desolate place is a bit of a loaded term at this point. Because on the surface, it looks like the apostles are concerned that the people are not going to have food to eat. So, you know, we don't want these people to get hungry, so send them away to buy some food. But really, what's going on here is they're concerned about their own hunger, and lack of rest. Because Jesus invited them to a desolate place to be away from people. Here they are in the desolate place and the crowds have followed them. They are exhausted. They want to be alone. They want to rest. They want to eat. But Jesus sees what's going on here and he decides to press a little bit on this discomfort. Now remember, Jesus had invited them there to rest. They're exhausted now from like another whole day of healing And Jesus himself is grieving, but even so, he's concerned with the people. So when they say, send them away, Jesus responds, we don't need to send them anywhere. You give them something to eat. 
Now, it says in John that he already knows what he's going to do. But John also says he decides to play along to test his disciples when they object to this. They say, we can't possibly pay for all. That would be 20 grand to buy enough bread for all these people. We don't have that. And he says, well, if you don't have enough, give them some of your food. How much food do you have with you? And I think a good takeaway at this point would be that we should be cautious of telling Jesus that we don't have enough money to buy someone lunch because he might ask you how much food is in your own lunchbox. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that the disciples said the same thing. They said, well, we only have five loaves and two fish with us. But John gives us another piece of interesting information. John says, it turns out they don't even have food themselves. John says they replied, there's a boy in the crowd who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? 20 grand, again, would hardly be enough to even give them each a taste. So apparently... Since they didn't bring any food, they were trusting Jesus enough to provide for their lunch, but not enough to provide for everyone's lunch. And we get that too, right? Like We get like that. We will trust God to provide for our needs, but not necessarily feel that we have the leeway to be generous with his provision of us. Like, we could see that God might be able to bring food out of nothing for us, but we have to be careful not to invite anyone over to dinner that night in case he doesn't materialize enough bread out of thin air. So we should be cautious when we judge them at this point. Now, Jesus ordered them, bring me the bread and have the people sit in the grass in groups of 50. And Jesus takes the food and he gives thanks and then he breaks the bread and fish and then he breaks it again and then he breaks it some more and then he keeps breaking it and giving it out. And suddenly, all 5,000 men plus any women and children that were with him, up to 15,000 individuals, conservatively speaking, all of a sudden have enough to eat. And it says they each got as much as they wanted. Now remember, these people have been in a desert for hours and they just ran around a lake. They can put away some bread and fish at this point. But it says they all ate as much as they wanted and they brought back 12 basketfuls of leftovers, which is one for each disciple who doubted him for those of you keeping score at home. Now, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said to one another, surely This is the prophet who's come to save us. And they tried to take him and make him king over Israel by force. I'm sure many of your Thanksgiving meals next week are going to be delicious. But if your guests don't try and take you and make you king by force over the country, they could be a little better. (laughs) So why did they do this whole king by force thing, though? Like, was the bread that good? Well, remember, this is the time of Passover, And Passover was their yearly celebration of the time that Moses led their fathers out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. And for the past several decades, they've been celebrating this freedom from Egyptian captivity under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So they're thinking to themselves, you know what? This guy is going to be our new Moses. This guy is going to lead us out of Rome, out of this slavery we've been in. And how do we know? Because he did the whole bread in the desert thing. That's a total Moses move, right? They people think they understand, and they are so close. They are so close to getting it. Moses did say that one greater than he would come and deliver Israel. What they are missing is the greater freedom that this greater prophet is going to bring. See, physical freedom, political freedom, is small compared with what Jesus has in mind. It's not insignificant, but compared to Christ's mission, it is small. So Jesus hides for them. 
from them. And do you hear the theme that's developing here? Jesus cares about, he has compassion on, and he provides for physical needs, right? He doesn't ignore the physical needs and say they're not important, but he is after more. So he tells his disciples to go back to the other side, to Capernaum, which is next door to Bethsaida, still in Galilee. And he decides to continue hiding from the crowd up on the mountain and be alone for a little while. So the disciples set on a boat to the Sea of Galilee that night, and a huge storm comes up. So Jesus casually walks out on the water to rescue them, as one does. And he sees them, or they see him, and they think he's a ghost. They don't recognize him. And so they panic, but he says, no, 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 it's okay, it's me. And Peter says, okay, Lord, if it's you, then tell me to come out on the water to you. And you know the story. Peter gets out of the boat. He does okay for a couple of steps before he bends down to tie his shoe, and then he starts drowning, and Jesus jerks him out of the water and sets him in the boat like a wet cat. And then as soon as Jesus steps foot in the boat, the storm stops immediately. And the apostles are astounded. They are shocked at him calming the storm. And the text says they were shocked because they did not understand what he was doing with the bread. Jesus cares for their physical safety, but he's after more. And there's a lot going on in this text, but there is one major thing I want to focus on. All of the gospel authors are doing the same thing here in their own unique narratives. From a literary perspective, they are shouting at us. The people's question is, is this a new prophet? Could this be our king? This is the right question with the wrong motives, but the gospel writers do not want us to miss that it is, in fact, the right question. Each of them situates this story in the middle of a collection of different stories, right? They each have their own different stories, and they center in on this same story here, the center. And each of those stories involves Jesus paralleling the acts of God in the Old Testament with what he's doing now. And Matthew foreshadows this at the beginning of his section by quoting Jesus saying that the man who is prepared for the coming of the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a great house who brings out from his treasures both old and new things for his guests. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing out of his treasure both things old and things new to reveal the kingdom of God to people. In Luke, the chapter right before he feeds the 5,000, he calms another storm with just a single word. And the disciples were then, as well, astonished, asking, what kind of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And then he feeds thousands of people with bread from heaven in the middle of the wilderness. And then in a few verses later in Luke, he goes up on a mountaintop, he speaks with God face to face, and he comes down with his face shining. So... Goes up on a mountaintop, speaks to God face to face with a face shining, uh, calms the sea and leads people across it, uh, calls down bread from heaven. Does all of this sound familiar? In Mark, King Herod hears that people are gossiping about Jesus and they're saying that he is maybe Elijah or John the Baptist raised from the dead. And Herod asks, well, John I killed, but what sort of man is this Jesus? And then he feeds the people with bread from heaven in Mark's narrative, and then he walks across the ocean. Now, back in Matthew, we see not only does he walk across the ocean, but he leads Peter to walk across with him. Where else has God called his people to walk across an ocean? But this is great. Mark says the disciples were astounded by his walking on water and calming the storm, and I quote, because they did not understand about the bread. 
In other words, if they had got the meaning of the bread, they would not be shocked when he casually stopped the storm and walked across the water like some kind of God. If they understood the bread, they wouldn't be shocked about this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all want us as readers to join with the disciples, with King Herod, with Jesus' friends back in Nazareth, with the people that are eating the bread. They want us to ask the question, what sort of man is this? Could this be our new king? Now, who do you know that calms storms, gives bread from heaven, walks with you across an ocean, speaks face to face with God, heals the sick, and casts out demons? One thing I love about being a father is occasionally I can see myself reflected in my daughter. And it's not hard to imagine the angels who at this time know exactly what Jesus is doing, looking down from heaven in awe and saying, oh, wow, he's just like his father. And then there's John. And John pulls absolutely no punches and says, to heck with your literary devices, before clearing the whole thing up for us. He starts off with the whole, the Father is God and I'm just like him speech that Jesus gives in John chapter 5, the one that has the Pharisees wanting to kill him on the spot for claiming to be God. From there, he moves on to Jesus preaching to the Pharisees that you search the scriptures because you believe in them you have eternal life and you fail to see they were written about me. Another bold claim. And after this, then he feeds the 5,000. Then he heals people. Then he walks on water. Then he calms the storms. All those other gospel accounts are doing the whole vantage point, literary mystery kind of thing. And John's going straight, gospel for dummies. And as a particularly stubborn dummy, I appreciate him for it. He wants you to be very clear about what is happening here. And John chapter 6 that we're in is the longest chapter in the entire New Testament because the people who did the chapter breaks could not bring themselves to break up all of this because all of these stories go with the following explanation. John wants to tell us what Jesus did and then explain what Jesus was doing and then tell us about when Jesus explained what Jesus was doing. John wants you to know exactly what Jesus is doing. So the following explanation After they ate the bread, the 5,000 people ate the bread, they see him get in the boat, or his disciples get in the boat and sail away. So they ran all the way around the Sea of Galilee again. That's twice now. Like, what would you do for a Klondike bar kind of moment? They're running all the way around the sea just to get some more bread. And they search from town to town looking for him. And when they finally find him, Jesus says, you're only here because I gave you food. But the fact that you're hungry again shows me that you missed the point. You missed the real food. And he says, stop working for the bread that perishes. In other words, bread that you can eat and then be hungry again. He says, work for the food that gives eternal life. And the people respond, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Because they are a stiff-necked people, they immediately, they skip the whole bread of eternal life thing and zero in on this works thing, right? What do I got to do to get it? What do I got to do to make it happen? How can I make this about me? What are the steps that I have to take to obligate you to give me this bread? Jesus says, no, no. The work is this, that you believe in me. And of course, being a stiff-necked people, That's not good enough. 
So they ask him for a sign that they might believe in him. And I'm not making this up. They actually ask for a sign. Like that time, Moses gave all of our fathers bread in the wilderness. The same people that just ate bread in the wilderness yesterday. And Jesus says, no, you missed it. The true bread from heaven was not that manna in the Exodus. And it was not that bread you ate yesterday. Because your fathers ate that manna and they're dead. You ate that bread and you're still hungry. Hunger is the sign you're going to die if you don't eat something again. He says, I am the bread of life. If you had found me, you wouldn't still be unsatisfied. Now let's pause this story for a minute and let me ask you, have you ever found yourself, as we are wont to do, wandering from one relationship to the next, feeling perpetually unsatisfied? Do you bounce from one job to the next, still looking for the position that will fulfill you? Do you move from one success to the next, one food to the next, one child to the next, one house to the next, game to the next, TV show to the next, one distraction to another, feeling like a person who has snacked through everything in their pantry and still can't find what they really want to eat? What I'm asking is, do you have a hunger that everything in this life has failed to satisfy up to this point? And are you finally tired of blaming that spiritual hunger on mere physical needs? Or do you want to go back and look through the pantry again? That is essentially what Jesus is asking these people back in our story. And you know what they did? They did what many of us may be tempted to do right now. They grumbled at him because they still did not understand. And it says many of his disciples left him that day. And so he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he spends the next year with almost exclusively these 12 disciples. Until one year later at the fourth and final Passover of his earthly ministry, he reminds them of this story in a powerful way. After he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey... They are eating the last supper in the upper room together and he parallels the story of the feeding of the 5,000. First, he serves them by letting them rest while he washes their feet. Then he says, I am the bread. This is my body. And he gives thanks and he breaks it. And he gives them the bread and he says, divide it amongst yourselves. And then he tells them, I am the true bread. I'm going to be broken for you tomorrow. And afterwards, I'm going to be raised up and given to so many more than 5,000 men. The thing about Passover bread, though, Passover bread is the bread that you eat quickly. It's the bread that you eat in haste. Passover bread is unleavened because you don't want to have to wait around and let it rise for hours. You want to spend 10 minutes making it, throw it in the oven, pull it out, eat it while it's still hot. You're supposed to eat it with your cloak on, with your staff in your hand, with your bags packed. The house is clean. The kids are ready to go. You are supposed to eat it as quickly as you can because you are supposed to remember that this bread signifies deliverance is coming. You need sustenance for the journey. Passover bread is the bread that you eat when deliverance is coming quickly and you need something to sustain you on the way there. Jesus is telling them, I am the true Passover bread. Deliverance is coming. You need me to sustain you on the way to your new home. And then he tells them he's going to be broken, given to the whole world. But before he goes out to everyone, he says, meet me back in Galilee. 
So all of this happens. He's taken away, broken and crucified. And while he's at trial, Peter is there watching him. And a lady asks Peter and says, wait, this man was with Jesus from Nazareth. And Peter says, I have no idea who that man is. He has forgotten who he said Jesus was. The man with the words of eternal life just one year before. And then another person comes up an hour later and says, yes, you're with Jesus from Galilee. And he denies it again. I have no idea who that man is. And an hour later, a third person says, no, you have to be friends with Jesus. I can hear it in your accent. You're from Galilee. And Peter calls down curses on himself and says, I have never seen that man in my life. And as soon as the words leave his lips, the rooster crows and Peter weeps. And then Jesus is broken for Peter, for all of us. Fast forward several days after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. The disciples are all out on the boat fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if they went back there because Jesus told them to meet him back there or if they went back there because you go home when life gets rough. For whatever reason, that's where they are. And they look out from the boat and they see a man on the shore and they don't recognize him. It's Jesus and he says, are you catching any fish? Do you remember the last time they were on the shore of Galilee and he asked them if they had any fish? And they say, no. He says, well, cast your net on the other side and you'll find some. So they do and the nets start to break because of the fish. And then Peter recognizes, and I mean really sees Jesus, and he forgets about the fish. This time he doesn't wait for permission for God. He jumps out of the boat into the water, swims as fast as he can to the shore, and Jesus welcomes in the man who had betrayed him. And he sits down with him and the other disciples, and he gives them fish, not the ones they had caught even, some he had already been preparing for them. And they eat the bread and the fish together on the shore of Galilee. And after they finish eating, Jesus takes Peter aside and he asks him three times, do you love me? One question for every time Peter denied him. And Peter, through tears, says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Do you remember how the people looked to Jesus a year before on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when he had compassion on them? They look like sheep without a shepherd to him. And Jesus has compassion on them then and on them now. So his primary concern when he speaks to Peter is that Peter would feed his sheep. He tells Peter, if you know who I am and if you love me, be like me. This is what I do. Feed my sheep. Now you can learn almost as much from the things that you might expect Jesus to say that he does not and when Peter asked him, do you, or when he asked Peter, do you love me three times, what might you have expected him to respond with when Peter said yes? Perhaps, do you love me? Yes, obey me. Do you love me? Yes, worship me. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, at the very minimum, don't betray me. Don't deny me. But the primary thing that Jesus is concerned with right now is his sheep. And he connects that primary concern to Peter's betrayal. Because the night before, or a few nights before, the servant girl asked Peter, do you know that man? And Peter said, no. Jesus is now saying that he is the bread that Peter is to give to the sheep. 
He doesn't mean, do you love me, then care for people's physical needs, although that is certainly appropriate. What he is really concerned with is the fact that in order for Peter to feed Jesus' sheep, Peter has to know the bread of life. That servant girl asked Peter who Jesus is, and he didn't give her the bread. Jesus knows that if Peter is going to feed his sheep the bread from heaven, he's got to know the bread from heaven himself. And a lot of people hear the story of the 5,000, and they think, this is Jesus magnifying what we have to take care of people, and he's going to do that for me. Like, you bring Jesus five bucks, he'll turn it into a million bucks. That is not the message of this story. Certainly he could do that. That is not the point. The physical multiplication of what they physically had is not the point. It is symbolic. It's not what we have that people need more of. It is Jesus that they need. The point is not physical bread, just like the point of them going to the desert wasn't physical rest, just like the point of them healing all those people wasn't physical health. Yes, Jesus has compassion on and cares for and provides for our physical needs, but that is not why you and I should seek him above anyone else because there's a lot of people offering us bread right now. There's a lot of people offering to heal your sickness if you follow them. There's a lot of people offering you happiness if you pay attention to them. But their bread, their medicine, their happiness will not even satisfy you until tomorrow, much less through the journey to deliverance. We seek him not because he has bread, but because he is bread. Not because he provides safety, because he is our safety. Not because he can give us freedom, because he is our freedom. And this is not a new idea. This is not a New Testament concept as opposed to an Old Testament concept. This is the entire message of the Bible. Just read Isaiah 55, where the prophet writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why would you spend your money and your labor for that which is not bread, and your work for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The food is the metaphor, so it doesn't matter what noun you use. It doesn't matter if it's milk, water, wine, bread, or fish. The adjectives matter. It is free, it is abundant, and it satisfies. Now, people regularly spend their entire lives decades running from one town to the next chasing the physical blessings of Jesus do not follow them don't chase the wrong bread familiarity can cause us to miss what has been right in front of us our entire lives Jesus may have been faithfully providing for your physical needs for years but if you have not trusted him for true life if you have not seen him as the ultimate satisfaction if you have not tasted and seen that he himself is better than all of his blessings combined then this story is for you This invitation is yours. Come and buy the true bread without price and live with him forever. Believe in, put your faith in today and every day the person of Jesus Christ and be truly satisfied. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
these are wonderful words, but we depend on you to understand them. More than that, we depend on you to believe them. So we ask that you would come into our hearts anew this morning and that you would open us up to the reality that Christ is the thing that we seek. And we pray that we would not glorify other things by attributing our satisfaction to them, but that we would seek Christ above all else and find satisfaction in him. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.